Time for Swordplay. Alex, celebrity musician Justin Bieber recently criticized celebrity pastors who, quote, put themselves on a pedestal, end quote, arguing that every person has access to God regardless of status. You know, Nick, I agree with Justin Bieber on this one. I think there's something lacking in virtue when all you care about is building a name for yourself, making a bunch of money, and becoming famous and idolized by people around the world. Thanks, Justin Bieber, for pointing this out to us. Nice. This is Swordplay, offering a double-edged perspective (laughs) on Scripture. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, Malachi chapter 4. That's right, Malachi chapter 4. It's only six verses, but leave it to us to make an entire episode on six verses. So, since we have plenty of content, because it is rich, why don't we jump right into verse 1, Nick? Verse 1, Malachi talks about a day which will burn like a furnace. When, when will this happen? What day is that? Yeah, so uh, a couple things that, uh, first of all, I guess are noteworthy is, uh, so Malachi is written here uh, as, as it reads, for behold, the day is coming. Now, what's interesting is o- almost always when you come across that structure, uh, that kind of statement uh, in Scripture, behold, the day is coming. That coming time of either salvation and or judgment is referred to usually in the plural with days. Behold, days are coming. There are several examples of that. Let me just give uh, one here from Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. Behold, the days are coming. And we know this, of course, is in reference to salvation that comes through the new covenant, but uh, days are coming. There's another example of this over in Amos 4 and verse 2, where that's actually about judgment that's coming upon Israel via the Assyrians. Here, it's the singular, and that probably corresponds to the phrase, the day of Yahweh, uh, which shows up in 4 verse 5, the great and awesome day of Yahweh. Uh, But also, it's a common theme. We've discussed it several times before, actually. But uh, if you really want to see where we talk about it quite a bit because it's a very prominent theme of that particular book. Go and listen to the episodes we did on the book of Zephaniah. Uh, You can find those in the archives. So behold, the day is coming. The day is coming, uh, and that day that is coming is, it probably corresponds back to 3 verse 17. They are mine, says Yahweh of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. So I believe there's continuity here. Uh, in from chapter 3 into chapter 4, and it's the day when Yahweh would make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And perhaps this may even reach back all the way to chapter 3, verse 2, uh, where it talks about the day of his coming. Uh, so there, there may be quite a bit of continuity here, going back uh, even a whole chapter. As to when this day will come, so I guess there's a, a bit about prophecy here, and, and we'll actually circle back to this at the end of the episode as well to talk about uh, prophecy fulfillment in more detail. But there's a there's a temptation to read what's here in Malachi 4 and just, even for us today, shove it into the future as uh, exclusive to the final judgment and the second coming of Christ. 
And, and that's understandable. A lot of people do it. And it's understandable because of the way it's written as well. Uh, but two options uh, are given, uh, have been given, uh, concerning when this day will come. And one is final judgment. And, and again, most are quick to run here. But I think if we back up, and, and we'll be making these connections all throughout this episode, there are an overwhelming connections between Malachi chapter 4 and what's stated here and things that are said in the life and ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. And since that's the case, the other option that presents itself, if it's not the final judgment, when is it? Well, a very strong case can be made that what is in view here is the destruction of Jerusalem. And of course, the destruction of Jerusalem occurred in the first century, A.D. 70. It was performed by the Romans. And if this is the case, the rejection of Messiah, coupled with continued rebellion to God, led to God's decree of utter destruction coming upon that particular nation. And given the New Testament's interpretation of these particular Malachi prophecies, along with Jesus' own infallible witness, that should give us pause before shoving these prophecies into the future. Now, I'll make the case later, that doesn't mean there aren't elements contained in this prophecy, principles that undergird it, that are, uh, that are applicable to us. There are principles that are applicable to us in these prophecies. But again, given the ways in which this passage finds fulfillment in the lives and ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus, it's difficult, though it's not impossible, it's difficult to view this as the end of time and the final judgment, period, full stop. Again, the, the principles which undergird this prophecy, they may be applicable for the end of time and final judgment, but they certainly have a primary fulfillment in the life and ministry of John the Baptist, and also of Jesus. So, so a lot of stuff going on there right at the beginning concerning this day and even how we read and interpret prophecy. But Alex, again, when it comes to the day that is coming, which day is it that's going to burn like an oven or a furnace, and, and when will this happen? Well, I will say, like you, I do see multiple things going on here, sort of a kaleidoscope of perspectives. Yes, there's going to be a fulfillment here found in the life of John the Baptist and Jesus. There's going to be a fulfillment here, especially when we get to verse 6, for the destruction and judgment that comes upon Judah and Jerusalem in uh, AD 67 to AD 70. And I think there also is here a lot to be said concerning the final day of judgment and the resurrection. And so this particular portion about the day which burns like a furnace. I think that is the final day of judgment. Now, I agree that this day should connect back to other mention uh, uh, in the verse in chapter 3, verse 17, where it says, They will be mine, says Yahweh of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Now, on the last episode, when we covered that verse, I mentioned how this language echoes the Exodus event where Yahweh calls the nation of Israel his son and then saves the people out of Egyptian slavery. Thus, a recapitulation of that event would take place 
in Jesus Christ as the new Moses, and all who believe in him as the true Israel, which of course would include all of the nations. The crucifixion was our Passover, baptism was our crossing of the Red Sea, and ah, but then what happened next? Well, the time of testing in the wilderness to prepare Yahweh's people as his possession. So too, the Christian must endure a time of testing to prepare us as God's possession until the resurrection and final day of judgment. So I'm inclined to see Malachi 4.1 as referring to the final day of judgment in which all things will be burned up with fire at the return of Christ. See also our archives for uh, episode our episode on 2 Peter chapter 3, where a similar picture of final judgment is given. Now, according to Malachi in this verse, all evildoers will be, will be destroyed in the fire at this final judgment. While a local temporal judgment on Jerusalem, again, is in mind later on in verse 6, that judgment will be dependent on the people's response to Yahweh's messenger and the appearing of the Lord. And as we know from the Gospels and from history, the response of the people to John the Baptist and Jesus was only enough to postpone Jerusalem's destruction until AD 70. But there's more packed into this short passage. So again, in verse 1, we see another part which says, uh, they will be left without root or branch. What does that mean, Nick, to be left without root or branch? Yeah, so this is the result of the twofold fate of the wicked in verse 1. The first step is the reduction of the wicked to stubble, which is fit only for fire. And so then, the second step, they are set ablaze. They are burned. The final result of this utter destruction is desolate barrenness. This is expected for those excluded finally and fully from the presence of God. Now, I believe it's noteworthy that... The Apostle Paul uses the imagery of roots and branches when discussing the status of Israel in his day in the book of Romans. He writes that approximately in the late 50s in the first century AD. Two decades after the coming of Christ, the majority of Israel was disconnected from the nourishing root of the olive tree, as he says in 11 verse 17. That was because God had broken them off due to their unbelief. He says that in 11, verses 19 and 20, still in Romans. Thus, one could say that they were without root or branch. Meanwhile, Gentiles who were from a wild olive tree were grafted in by God to his tree to become part of it along with the remnant chosen by grace, as Paul describes it in 11 and verse 5. All of this was according to the wisdom of God. He foreknew his own people's rejection and used it to bring riches for the Gentiles while also aiming to make Israel jealous and repent. This is part of the larger argument Paul makes in Romans uh, 10, verse 19, and also chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. So God's strange plan, as N.T. Wright has uh, described it, God's strange plan was that even in Israel's rebellion, God was at work in all things after the counsel of his will for the good of the whole world, including those who are in rebellion, his own people. Uh, so I think that bit there in Romans, especially Romans 11, and that uh, image of the olive tree, I think that comes into play here also in talking about without root 
or branch. That's what I see. Alex, what do you think? So this language of roots and branches, we also see that kind of language used by John the Baptist. So John the Baptist spoke about these kinds of things regarding the impending judgment upon Judah. He said, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He will gather his wheat into his barn, and he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so he moves on to multiple agrarian images regarding impending judgment and destruction. You get that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 and following. Now Jesus, he'll come along in a few chapters in Matthew, and he'll use the same kind of language again. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 19, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Now, while it is tempting to see the words of John the Baptist and Jesus as only looking towards Jerusalem's destruction, I think we would be amiss to not see the final judgment in view as well. Specifically, the gathering of wheat into a barn. That's resurrection language. That's salvation language of the righteous. And we see that in Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 through 43, where the parable of the wheat and the tares is explained, and we're told that angels will come to separate the wicked from the righteous at the end of the age. And so too here in Malachi 4, those who are left without root or branch, they have no chance to grow back. They have no chance to spread their seed and multiply. They are destroyed completely, and this includes every evildoer which sort of has that universal tone of final judgment. So that the resurrection, I think, is in mind here will be made more clear as we continue in the following verse. But that's where I see here is that uh, to be left without root or branch, I think that's language for the complete annihilation of, of all evildoers on the earth, clearing the earth like a field for the dwelling place of just the righteous. So verse 2, Nick. Who are the ones who feared Yahweh's name? Yeah, I believe this recalls uh, 3, verses 16 through 18, uh, where uh, those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another. They were those who uh, not only feared Yahweh, but they esteemed his name, as the end of verse 16 says. So those who feared Yahweh, they're also those who esteemed his name and were his treasured possession, as they're described in verse 17. I believe these are the righteous remnant uh, in that day. So that's what I see here. What say you? Yeah, I think this group also, uh, those who fear Yahweh, that even harkens back to Malachi 2.15, for those who have a remnant of the Spirit. Uh, we saw in 3.16, it is also those who have their names written in the book of remembrance. Now, as mentioned before in the previous podcast, the Christians enjoy having their names written in the book of life, maybe the same book that we're referring to. The Christian is Yahweh's treasured possession. That's 1 Peter 2, 9. And the Christian has the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2. So based on what Malachi will say next, I see those who fear Yahweh's name as applying both to God's faithful people of old and those who have since held faith in Christ Jesus since the coming of John the Baptist and the Messiah. Thus, the promise given next in verse 2, I think, will apply to all of God's faithful throughout all time. So, 
speaking of what applies next, then verse 2, it talks about the sun will, uh, a son of righteousness will rise. That's S-U-N, by the way. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So what does it mean that the son will heal them in verse 2, Nick? Yeah, I'm getting like flashbacks from playing Super Mario Brothers 3 back in the day where you had the level where the the angry sun would come down and try to get you and you have to jump over it and stuff. Of course, this is uh, completely different than an angry sun in the sky um, because this, the sun of righteousness, will rise uh, and its dawning will bring healing in its wings. The sun of righteousness uh, is, is a phrase that is unique to Malachi. And there are at least two interpretive options that are possible. The, the Son of Righteousness is Christ. Many commentators take this view, and it is supported by an illusion that is made in a prophecy that was made by John the Baptist's daddy, Zechariah, in Luke 1 and verse 78. He talks about how because of God's tender mercy, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And so many commentators have made that connection. The Son of Righteousness then is Christ. He is the the sunrise that visits uh, us from on high. Uh, the other option is that the this is the dawning of the day of Yahweh generally. And so that's the idea of the sun rising and, and dawning here. It's the dawning of the day of Yahweh generally. So as the kingdom of God comes near, righteousness becomes as pervasive as the sun's rays. As the sun shines all over creation, so righteousness goes out, and uh, with it, it brings healing uh, in its wings. So uh, a couple of options there. Uh, Alex, what say you? Well, here's what Malachi 4.2 says again. Just as a reminder for the audience, you may not have your Bibles out says, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So here's the crazy part. A near identical version of this passage was known to the early church. Tertullian, who's in the early 200s, his treatise on the resurrection, chapter 31, quotes this passage from Malachi verse 2. And his quote is as follows. You shall go forth from your sepulchers as young calves let loose from their bonds. Sepulchre, by the way, is a grave. So to Tertullian, whatever manuscript he had access to, this was a resurrection passage. You shall go forth from your graves and dance about and leap like calves let loose from the stall. Now, I agree that the Son of Righteousness is likely a reference to Jesus, but the timing here seems to be in reference to the resurrection and this gives light, pun intended, <laughs> to what Jesus says in Matthew thirteen forty three. Again, back to the parable of the tares and the wheat and the interpretation that Jesus gives. After the angels separate everyone in judgment, it says, The righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, if you use Malachi 4, 2 and Matthew thirteen forty three together then, In the resurrection, the righteous will shine like the sun because the sun of righteousness has shone forth his healing light on them. And I think that's awesome. (laughs) Christ became like us so that we might become like him. Uh, 
And we'll have to come back to this idea in our next episode on theosis. So verse 3, Nick, we have the trampling of the wicked, ashes under their feet. Who will trample the wicked? How will this happen? When will this happen? Where will this happen? Verse 3. Yeah, you, of course, corresponding to the you in verse 2, you who fear my name, that goes back, of course, back to chapter 3 in verse 16, those who fear Yahweh and uh, esteem his name. Uh, So you would be the righteous remnant uh, on the day. uh, That would be the day of of, uh, judgment slash salvation, the the day of divine action that God is promising. And so what's pictured here is a reversal, whereas before it was the righteous trampled underfoot, now it is the wicked who are trampled underfoot. And in keeping with a Christological fulfillment, Christ is is invited to sit at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made his footstool. Indeed, he rules in the midst of his enemies, as we are told in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, which is one of the most uh, quoted Old Testament passages in the New Testament. So, he does reign. uh, And uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, talks about how he is uh, reigning and must reign until he puts his enemies under his feet. And so, therefore, we, the righteous remnant of our day, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, as Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 37. So, uh, that's a bit about what I see here. Alex, what do you think? I think the who we've already discussed is the righteous who are raised to eternal life in the resurrection. That's the way I see it. The how How is that possible? It's made possible because all evildoers have been incinerated on the earth. They've been turned into ash, and that's what the righteous are now walking on top of in this verse. It's not through military warfare. It's not through political power. The righteous will conquer through death and resurrection, just like Jesus did. And the win of this trampling will occur is at the resurrection after the final judgment, The where is on earth, will walk in the new heaven and earth, or a more nuanced description would be heaven on earth. In other words, a new global Eden. And as a side note, you know, this final destruction of the wicked, that's Yahweh's answer, by the way, to Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 and chapter 3 verse 15, where The people are saying, where is the God of justice? Only evildoers are built up. They test God and they escape from God. Do not be fooled. God's justice will be satisfied and the wicked will not escape. This is God's answer for that. It will happen at the final day of judgment in the fire and the righteous will be raised to eternal life in the resurrection. So verse 4, Nick there is an encouragement, an exhortation to keep the law, but it says, keep the law of Moses, my servant. Why mention Moses, my servant, when exhorting them to keep the law in verse 4? Yeah, Moses is called the Lord's servant, Yahweh's servant, uh, some 40 times in the Hebrew Bible. About half of those are in the book of Joshua alone. The writer of Hebrews affirms that Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5. That is, 
the nation uh, as being God's house, the people of Israel. And that corresponds, of course, to Christ's faithfulness over God's house, which is his church, uh, which is what the writer of Hebrews says. So Moses was merely the human agent through which came the divine revelation of God, the law, the Torah. Indeed, the, the next phrase even emphasizes that it really is God's law. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Uh, Remember is how uh, verse 4 starts in my English Standard Version. Remember, of course, implies that a thing was forgotten. And given what we've read throughout Malachi, the, the people have forgotten God's law. And so the call is to remember uh, the law. So uh, that's what I see here about uh, Moses, my servant. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Well, I think God could have just said, remember to follow the law. But given the rich fulfillment of the other prophetic material in this short chapter, I think the mentioning of Moses, my servant, which you're right, it's a common phrase for Moses, especially in the book of Joshua, that I believe subtly hints at the new Moses, right? A prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. This was not fulfilled by Moses' successor, Joshua, son of Nun, but it was fulfilled in another Joshua, son of Joseph. So two Joshuas there, one is the successor of Moses who arose to be like him. He is the new Moses, that is Jesus, that's the Messiah. So I think that mentioning of Moses, my servant, it's sort of a breadcrumb, a part of the trail, part of the messianic uh, mosaic puzzle that points towards the Messiah, the messenger of the covenant who would come after John the Baptist. So verse 4, we have a reference to a location called Horeb. So Nick, where is Horeb? Yeah, and it's especially interesting because it's at Horeb where the commandments and rules are commanded by Yahweh, right? I thought that was Sinai. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> Horeb is another name for Sinai. Ah. And despite the attention given to it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, there's some 60 chapters where they're just at Sinai, the exact location of Mount Sinai slash Horeb is still debated. They're mm. not really sure exactly where it is. So uh, that's what I found about Horeb. What did you find, Alex? Well, I think that's right. This is sometimes confusing, but Horeb is Mount Sinai. Perhaps Horeb is inclusive of a broader piece of land around Sinai, or maybe it's the opposite. I've, some people think that it's just a more specific part of the mountain, where one side of this mountain range is Horeb, one side is Sinai. We don't know. We don't know. But they are synonymous, Horeb, Sinai. And here's a fun fact. If you're reading Deuteronomy, the preferred term for Deuteronomy is by far the name Horeb, Mount Horeb. And that's mentioned nine times in Deuteronomy, but Sinai is only mentioned one time. And here's another fun fact, Elijah, which we're going to see more about Elijah here in a minute. Elijah, when he was running away from Jezebel, was given miracle bread from the angel of Yahweh in order to sustain him while making a special trip that took him 40 days, 40 nights, to get to none other than Mount Horeb. And you get that in 1 Kings chapter 19. 
And yes, it's quite baffling that we don't know where Mount Sinai or Horeb is today. <laughs> you would think you could just show up to one of those uh, hilltops and look for the one that has a giant scorched circle on top of it, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, we have not found it. It's a, it's a debate. It's baffling. And if you want my opinion, right, which uh, I guess you're listening to the show if you want my opinion, <laughs> I think that Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, was a physical manifestation that Yahweh caused into being temporarily for his people to meet with him. It's, it's a theophany, but in cosmic mountain form. So, chew on that for a little bit. <laughs> but speaking of Elijah, verse 5, did Yahweh send Elijah back to earth? Will he send Elijah back to earth? If he did, when did this happen, Nick? Yeah, yes, twice, in fact. Uh, the first, of course, is John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah with the mission to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's a direct reference to Malachi 4 and verse 6. You read that over in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. In addition, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as the Elijah who came in Mark chapter 9. Verses 11 through 13. So, by fulfilling his God-ordained mission, John, as the Elijah of Malachi's prophecy, was restoring all things. And we take that to mean he's calling the remnant of Israel to repentance and faith while binding upon unbelieving Israel the curse of the decree of utter destruction. Again, all this in Malachi 4 and verse 6. So, who's the second? Well, uh, we can't forget the appearance of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that actually prompted that whole Elijah conversation in the first place in Mark chapter 9. Uh, verse 4 is where Elijah appears with Moses there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then also verse 11 kicks off that whole discussion about, well, I thought Elijah was supposed to come. And well, he did. And it was John the Baptist. So, uh, so that's what I found about Elijah. What say you, Alex? You know, I just thought of this next week in our Theosis episode. We'll have to come back to Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus at the Transfiguration because Peter will take that and he'll use that in reference back to, I think, uh, our resurrection and the promise to be partakers of his divine nature. And so that's in Second Peter chapter 1. But back to Malachi verse 5. Did Yahweh send Elijah back to earth? When did this happen? Well, as you said, yeah, Elijah was sent. Uh, and you gave the verse references. There's another one that Matthew records that after John the Baptist was imprisoned, Jesus spoke to the crowds about John and said that he, John, was the Elijah to come. That's Matthew 11:14. Right. Uh, interesting, though, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 21, there were some priests sent by the Pharisees to ask John the Baptist directly if he was Elijah. And John the Baptist said no. So, what's going on? Well, we have one of two things going on here. Either John the Baptist didn't know that he was Elijah, which could possibly make sense out of um, when you read it through 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, that kind of scenario where it talks about the prophets didn't fully uh, get the, the revealing or understanding of what they were prophesying concerning the Messiah. So John the Baptist as a prophet maybe wasn't given direct knowledge or revelation about the meaning of the things which he spoke concerning Messiah. That's one possibility. Or second possibility is that John the Baptist was simply confirming that he was not the preconceived notion of who the Pharisees thought Elijah would be, right? So Elijah in the Old Testament, he was 
ascended into heaven. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. Well, maybe there was a preconceived notion by the Pharisees that when Elijah comes, he'll come down with chariots of fire. He'll do miracles again like he did before. He'll bring people back to life. Um, Maybe this would be a reincarnation of Elijah. But there were no chariots of fire flying around in the sky. John the Baptist did no miracles. There was not a reincarnation. So, Perhaps John the Baptist was saying, I am not the Elijah that the Pharisees are looking for. That's another possibility. So it seems that Elijah did come, though. It was figuratively fulfilled by John the Baptist, which Jesus confirms as being the case several times. But also, as you mentioned, the real Elijah, he did show up for a brief moment in time along with Moses when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. So there you go, folks. All of you figurative-only and literal-only interpreters, you can all have your own way with this one. You get both. Congratulations. (laughs) Well, verse 5. Elijah will come uh, before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. So what is the great and terrible day of Yahweh, Nick? Verse 5. Yeah, we've actually talked about this. uh, uh, Did we? I think we did. We, We covered Joel 2. Uh, and it's mentioned, this, the same phrase is used over in Joel 2 and verse 31. It's, it's the day when God brings judgment upon the wicked and salvation for the righteous. And specifically, with the coming of John the Baptist as Elijah, Jesus as messenger of the covenant, and, and if we take it that way, the son of righteousness that uh, rises uh, with healing in his wings, uh, that great and terrible day dawned. It, it has dawned. Uh, in the first century. Restoration, rather than being universal for all Israel, was aimed squarely at the righteous remnant. Salvation and righteousness, even through judgment, began while Christ was on earth. For the majority of rebellious Israel, who rejected first John and then Jesus, only the curse of utter destruction remained. Uh, So, Uh, That's a bit of what I see here. Alex, what do you think about this great and terrible day of Yahweh? Well, I think it's hard to see this day as something different than the day already mentioned in chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 1. So I think this great and terrible day refers again to the final judgment after the resurrection. Yes, restoration has begun, but all of Christ's enemies have not yet been made a footstool for his feet. Hebrews 10, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25. The conclusion of that sounds a lot like the ashes of the wicked being under the feet of the righteous in Malachi chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, as recovered a moment ago. So there could be a correlation there. Uh, that day when all of Christ's enemies are made a footstool for his feet, that's the completion of that could be the same moment in which those enemies are the ashes which are now under the feet of the resurrected righteous. So Nick, verse 6, last verse of the chapter, what does it mean to have the fathers and children's hearts restored? Several commentators note the preposition to uh, in the phrase, the hearts of fathers to their children, that preposition there to can also be translated with. And so what you end up with is, he will turn the hearts of the fathers with their children and the hearts of the children with their fathers. And such a translation is acceptable, and it actually recalls the promise of restoration after curses over in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 and 2, 
where it says, Return to Yahweh, your God, you and your children. Uh, Prior to captivity, the situation was grim. In Ezekiel 5 and verse 10, the prophecy was made that fathers shall eat their children, children their fathers. Even after the exile, while they were not literally cannibals, they were consuming one another through greed and injustice and treachery. But a day was coming when Elijah would bring about a cross-generational change of heart. Now, going back to Luke 1 and verse 17, John the Baptist is said to fulfill this prophecy. As part of his preparatory ministry, he would turn the hearts of fathers and he would turn the hearts of the disobedient. In that way, he would prepare the way for the Lord. The righteous remnant would then emerge uh, from among those people who were prepared to receive the Lord. Uh, And so uh, that's a bit about what I see here in 4 verse 6. Well, continuing on with that thought then, Nick, uh, who did that restoration? Who restored the hearts of the fathers with their sons? And did that restoration prevent the land from being cursed, as we see at the end of verse 6? Yeah, verse 6, he will turn the hearts. And this is in contrast with I. Uh, That's Yahweh. The I there is Yahweh. I come and strike the land. I will send you Elijah. That's Yahweh. The he here then is Elijah, the figure who was to come. But uh, the Elijah figure is merely the means which Yahweh uses to accomplish his will. And we know that as the primary cause, Yahweh turns hearts as he deems fit. Uh, Not only kings, but uh, people generally. Proverbs 21 verse 1, Psalm 105 and verse 25. It is Yahweh who opens hearts, as we know from Acts 16 and verse 14, and he grants repentance, according to Acts 11 and verse 18. So, as pertains to the ministry of John the Baptist, he was the means whereby God would prepare his people for the Messiah. Now, inasmuch as this restoration was for the righteous remnant, the decree of utter destruction did come about. Uh, They fell under the curse. Uh, and uh, taken as the destruction of Jerusalem, that's, I believe, where we see the fulfillment of that decree of utter destruction. So uh, that's a bit what I found. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. John the Baptist, um, he, he did what God sent him to do. He did restore hearts. Uh, God worked through him. I agree with that. And it seems that Though John the Baptist did his job well, he didn't fail in his job. Uh, In fact, Jesus calls him the greatest born of women before the coming of the kingdom of God. And so he is the the last old covenant prophet that really ends that story, that part of the story, on a good note. However, he's doing his job well, but, you know, there still remains a kernel of willingness that must be present when God calls people to repentance— Jesus says, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. And when Jesus says that, he says it as if he'd been dealing with his people for centuries. And of course, we believe he had because he is God in the flesh. So Jesus, he wanted to gather Jerusalem. He was willing. That was his will. But the people were not willing. That kernel of willingness was not present in their hearts. Yes, a remnant repented through John the Baptist. That is clear. And most of that remnant immediately became followers of Jesus. We see that some went broader out and then came back 
and and learned more about Jesus later. We get that in Acts, I think, 19 with uh, Paul uh, teaching people who were followers of John the Baptist about Jesus, the one whom John pointed towards. But at the end of the day, right, at the end of the day, Jerusalem and Judah refused to listen. And had they listened, it would have prevented the land from being smitten with a curse. That's the point in Malachi 4.6 where it says, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, Jesus, he was going to die. He was going to be crucified. That was the plan. That was plan A. But the destruction of Jerusalem didn't have to happen. And it didn't have to happen in the time in which it happened either. I think the work of John the Baptist and Jesus, I think that bought Jerusalem and Judah a few more decades of time. Uh, John said, you know, the, the axe was already at the roots. And, of course, there's there's part of that language points towards the future, but part of that also points towards Jerusalem's impending judgment. But come AD 67, uh, 80, yeah, AD 67, when the Jewish-Roman War breaks out, ultimately ending up in AD 70 uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem. Once that arrives, that's time's up. Time is up. Destruction descends upon Judah and Jerusalem. Rome comes in, uh, and they scorch the earth of Judah, and then they destroy Jerusalem. But the effects of the work started by John the Baptist and carried through by Jesus the Messiah, that continued on in the world, obviously, beyond AD 70. And that effect, uh, the work, was not overcome by darkness, even until today, right? We're still here. Uh, And though always uh, persevering through dark times, the church has often emerged through trials and tribulations even stronger than it was before, having been refined by those trials and tribulations. And behold, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But in the end, all evildoers who refuse to repent, they will be the ash under our feet on that last day. So that's the way I see the end of uh, Malachi. Nick, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, just for uh, our listeners, I mean, it's it's very easy to get eschatological whiplash here, right? I mean, uh, we, we go from... Uh, the fulfillment in the first century, and then we're, we're over in the end of time. and and uh, But then we also have the immediate context in Malachi's day uh, when, when he was prophesying. And so when, when it comes to prophecy fulfillment, this is kind of where I started uh, in, when opening up back in verse 1, the discussion. Um, there, there may have been some immediate fulfillment to these prophecies in the turbulent times in which Malachi ministered. I mean, this is highly figurative prophetic language uh, that is used here. And, uh, and so if there was some kind of uh, judgment slash salvation, uh, if there was, it's unrecorded. We don't, we don't necessarily know about it. But even if there was... The New Testament's interpretation and Christ's own testimony shows that these prophecies were fulfilled in both him and John the Baptist. Subsequently, due to rejection and rebellion, God's decree stood and utter destruction came upon Jerusalem, in, uh, especially in AD 70, but the, the, the war did lead up to that. And at the same time, 
the principles which undergird these prophecies, they're still valid and relevant. I believe that's seen in the possible allusion by Paul to the roots and branches that I mentioned earlier from Romans chapter 11. There are common motifs that bind this judgment scene to other judgment scenes elsewhere in Scripture, including prophecies that we know point to the end of time and final judgment. And so, having said all that, while I'm not personally awaiting another Elijah figure, as a member of the righteous remnant of Christ, a branch on a tree that has Jewish roots, I anticipate the full and future vindication of God on that day. Uh, so, I, I don't know. Does that make sense, Alex? Uh, yeah, I think that makes sense, and I, I agree with what you said. Um, I'm not waiting for another Elijah either. Elijah came, and we, as believing Gentiles, we've been grafted into the uh, vine of Jesus Christ and his branches, the apostles, which, through the Holy Spirit, we bear fruit. All other trees will be burned like chaff at the final and great harvest. And so, so yeah, you, you've, you've mentioned um, a couple times uh, throughout this episode uh, what we're going to be doing next week. And so you want to talk a minute for, uh, for our fans about uh, the future plans for Swordplay? Right, and this is just a, a heads up for our listeners. Next week is the final episode of Swordplay Season 3, which will be on the topic of theosis. That has to do with uh, what we'll be like in the resurrection and how what we're doing now as Christians, living faithful lives, uh, plays into that, right? How it prepares us for that. And uh, don't don't be sad because we'll be back for Season 4. It'll probably be in a few months, but... For now, uh, stay tuned. Go back to the archives and listen to episodes you uh, maybe haven't caught before. And uh, that's what we have in store for the future for Swordplay. And maybe some other uh, other surprises, but we'll, we'll uh, keep you posted. And now I think it's time for our Featured Creature. Featured Creature. And Nick, this week's Featured Creature is the Dragon. That's right. Dragon translates the Hebrew term tanin which means pride in other contexts. But the, the term dragon uh, also translates uh, the Greek term dracon. It appears numerous times in the Bible. There are several ways in which uh, the term dragon is used in the Bible. There are apparently several dragons therein as well. So let me just uh, give an overview of the different ways in which this term is used. The first is sometimes it refers to an animal. And often the, the term is used to describe some animal, uh, perhaps a reptile, maybe a sea creature. Uh, in the beginning, God created the great sea creatures in Genesis 1 and verse 21, uh, the likes of which may also make appearances in like uh, Job 7 and verse 12, uh, uh, the, the sea monsters there. Uh, also, uh, the This could be paralleled with Leviathan, who shows up later in the book in chapter 41. Also, in Psalm 74, verse 13, uh, 148, verse 7, and also Jeremiah 51, verse 3. This uh, this could be uh, the usage that is in reference to an animal. Uh, Such a creature 
far from being a pet, is actually a creature that we can't control. We we are unable to bind or draw out Leviathan in Job 41 and verse 1. Again, assuming Leviathan is uh, a, a dragon. Uh, snakes, though, are another uh, way in which this term is used. Another animal. This is evidenced by Exodus 7, verses 9 and 10, where Moses' uh, staff becomes a serpent. And then also Deuteronomy 32, 33, Psalm 91, verse 13, could also be references to uh, an animal as well. However, there is another way <clears throat> in which this term is used, and it's paralleled with uh, the creature Rahab. Uh, this is actually uh, a, an outgrowth of an ancient Near Eastern figure, uh, and Rahab is the name of a sea monster, or chaos monster, created by and ruled by Yahweh. So one of the dragons is called Rahab, the other would be Leviathan. I think there's one more that I can't think of off the top of my head. But uh, Job 9 and verse 13, uh, also Job 26 and verse 28, and it could be also paralleled with chapter 7 verse 12, the sea monster there. Uh, these are a couple texts which present Rahab as uh, that, that sea monster or chaos monster. And uh, actually, she has helpers um, in 9 and verse 13. So rather interesting little connection there. Now, this moniker, Rahab, and, and the image itself, is actually applied to Egypt. So that Egypt is identified as Rahab, Rahab who sits still in Isaiah 30, verse 7, perhaps like a, like a crocodile maybe. Uh, Psalm 87 and verse 4, it is just assumed that the name Rahab is a name that is applied to Egypt. It's paralleled with, uh, what, Babylon and Philistia and, and others uh, in that verse, uh, Tyre and Cush as well. Uh, so specifically, as it pertains to Egypt and Pharaoh, several times the nation of Egypt as well as Pharaoh himself, are compared to the great dragon or a dragon in the seas. Uh, this is Ezekiel 29 and verse 3, also chapter 32 and verse 2. Despite his formidable, formidable appearance as a monster, and again, maybe like a monster crocodile, lurking there in the Nile, Yahweh would capture and kill. Something no human can do, by the way. That's kind of the assumed understanding, right? Yet Yahweh would capture and kill uh, this uh, this dragon, uh, Ezekiel 29 and verse 4, and also 32 and verse 3. And so in this usage and uh, the former usage, there, there does seem to be some mythological import, though um, uh, it's, it's um, tenuous. That's probably the best word. Uh, finally, the last usage is for the devil. Uh, the word dragon is used a dozen times in the Revelation as a figure for the devil. Revelation 12, the term there, is used seven times. But it's also in chapter 13, verse 2, also verse 4, verse 11. Revelation 16, verse 13, also 20, and verse 2. Satan is the great red dragon, 12, verse 3, describes him. Even the ancient serpent, 12, verse 9, says. So it may be that the dragon myth, which circulated in the ancient Near East, was actually informed by the original prideful serpent, who is the primeval enemy of God, whose defeat is pictured repeatedly throughout history, whether we want to talk about 
creation or the exodus or even in uh, church history, early church history, as I think Revelation is describing, God is constantly defeating his foe, and it will take place one more time at the end of time when God finally casts him into the lake of fire as described in 20 and verse 10. Of course, as I mentioned, 20 verse 2 describes him as the dragon there. So, dragon, a lot of information about the dragon that I found. Alex, what do you think? Well, you certainly covered lots of ground, so not a whole lot left for me to talk about. Good job, good job. But I will just, as a throwback, mention uh, some of our earlier podcasts. Let's not forget about Mordecai and Haman in the Greek version of Esther. We covered that earlier in Season 3. In that text, these two men are in a dream vision portrayed as two dragons battling in the sky. Double dragon! That's right. Another throwback uh, to our Septuagint uh, coverage of Daniel, where Daniel makes a cake bomb and feeds it to a real dragon that was being worshipped as a god in Babylon. The dragon dies from Daniel's cake bomb when it explodes inside of its stomach, and then the worship of the dragon ceases. So uh, Daniel uh, in that story is, is winning by far. Daniel 2, Bell and the Dragon, 0. And, of course, let's not forget about the sea monster that swallows up Jonah's dead body. Go back to our Jonah archive for that. Uh, This was not a whale. It was a sea monster, as we see in the Septuagint, likely referring to Leviathan, a dragon chaos monster. The earliest of Christian art, by the way, found in the catacombs of Rome, show numerous paintings of a sea dragon swallowing up Jonah and later spitting him out on the land. This image was later turned into a family crest in Italy, but then adopted in modern times today as the emblem for Italian sports car company Alfa Romeo. So Google Alfa Romeo, look up the logo, and you have a dragon spitting out or swallowing up a man, depending on your interpretation. But for some reason, the crown is on the dragon. Uh Uh-oh, that's not right. (laughs) What are you up to, Alfa Romeo? Well, several stories of Christian saints defeating real dragons that uh, terrorized villages can be found in uh, early Christian legends, the most famous being St. George, but also legends of St. Philip the Apostle and St. Theodore of Amasi. But be careful. Even Satan masquerades as a dragon of light, selling you lies of good fortune and trips to the land of Fantastica where you can live out a never-ending story. No, Bastion, that's not Falcor the Luck Dragon. It's the devil, watch out! (laughs) And that's our featured creature. (laughs) Never-ending story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Fun fact, when I was a kid, I actually thought the movie The Never-Ending Story literally was a never-ending story, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, VHS, you just keep rewinding it forever and ever and ever. (laughs) Remember VHS? That's crazy. How could I forget? Ugh. Be kind, rewind. That's right. Any notes for our audience today, Nick? Hey, if uh, you want to check out and go back into the archives, you can find it either either on the website, swordplay.cast.rocks, or go into the Apple Podcast Store, search Swordplay, and you can download those episodes to your particular device. Uh, Leave a review. Uh, Not only click some five stars there, but also uh, leave a written review. We'll read it on air for you. 
Uh, we always love getting fan mail. If you have a question, you can send it into the Swordplay text line. 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. Or they can email it in, right, Alex? That's right. Send your emails to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for sticking with us through the entire book of Malachi. And we'll see you next week for the season finale on the topic of theosis. And tune in next time for another episode of Swordplay, where you get a double-edged perspective on Scripture. 